Well, good morning. Great to be together. If you're visiting with us, we're really glad you're here. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And for our sermon, we're in week two of a series in the Old Testament uh, story of Nehemiah. It's a story um, set around the time period where Jerusalem was being rebuilt. And so in that way, it's a story kind of in the shadow of tragedy. And so after the exile, and so the the people were under God's judgment, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the people were carried off into exile, but God was restoring them as he had promised. And so they have gone back, they have started to rebuild, but the restoration is in progress, and at points it seems slow. And that's what we have this morning, that our story, it's happening about 100 years after the first Israelites went back to Jerusalem, and about 20 years after the story we read from Ezra, where the work to rebuild was stopped, and with power, it was torn down. And so last week, we were introduced to Nehemiah, uh, the namesake of our, of our story here. He's someone who cares deeply about his people, the Israelites, and the trouble in Jerusalem, even though he's personally safe. He really cares what's going on in Jerusalem. He's also someone who has continued to cling to God's promises, despite the appearance that God has kind of left his people with a lot left to do. And so last week, he starts with prayer, confessing to God the sin of the people, trusting in God's promises, asking for the opportunity to do something to help. And he ends chapter one in tension, where he asks for mercy before the king so that he could do something. And that's the picture we're dealing with here, that he's been praying but he's also eager and ready to move. And so that gets us into chapter 2. So we're going to read chapter 2, all, the whole chapter. It's on page 398. If you want to have it in front of you, it'll also be on the screen. But either way, it'd be really helpful if we can track on together. Before we come to it, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the different ways you bring your word to us all the different variety we have in the Bible. And so we pray for your help with this variety, that we have this story from history with all sorts of details that could either trip us up or could help us see the beauty of what you have done. And so we ask that that would be the case this morning, that through your spirit, we would see the beauty of what it looks like when you work in the world. And so help us through your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you, will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, let letters be given to, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they, may be, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one that, which I rode on. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and expected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in Nehemiah, we see how God works through a servant leader, one who in faith is crouched and ready to act, confident in God's providential care. Providence is not a word that's used in our passage, and it's really not a word we use very much today either. But providence is the central driving storyline. Providence basically is the idea, the attribute of God when he wisely governs and directs all things for his glory and for the good of his creation, especially his people. And so God's providence is how he's wisely acting and controlling all things for his glory and our good. And Nehemiah is someone who deeply believes in God's providence. And so in chapter 1, he had prayed for favor. In verse 8, when he gets favor, he gives credit to God for success with the king. In verse 18, when he inspires others to join the work, it's through a testimony about God's favor. And at the very end of the chapter, in verse 20, when Nehemiah, he stands against the opposition, he does so because he knows that God's providence will carry out God's promises. And so here's a servant leader who, in faith, is crouched and ready to act confident in God's providential care. And God blesses his people in Jerusalem through this one who steps forward. What about us? 
Do you feel crouched and ready to step forward into what God has for you? Are you full of energy and anticipation for what God will do in and through you? Or are you slouched? You know the difference, right? On the outside, they look very similar, both still, both waiting. But in result and application, they're very different. One is about to explode into action. The other is more likely to fall down. Both are dealing with the the force of inertia, right? So we're not going deep into science here, but you remember that inertia is the property of matter to resist change, to stay the same. And kind of more broadly in life, inertia would be the force that makes it easier to do nothing or to remain unchanged. And so we know in our physical lives, overcoming inertia, it's not a super high bar to pass, right? We do it all the time, but it does take effort. And today we're going to see a similar effort is required to overcome spiritual inertia. Do we have any CrossFitters among us? I'm guessing no, because we haven't heard about it. As you know, if you do CrossFit, you have to tell other people about it. But you probably know about CrossFit, and you've seen the videos of kind of the craziness. Um, From what I've heard, one of the first exercises you learn in CrossFit is the box jump. And so you've probably seen the videos of people doing amazing things, but the The basics are simple. You're squatting down, loading up with energy, and then boom, all at once, expending it in explosion. And so it's more than just being strong or being fast. It's a combination, an application of max effort in a moment. And so the videos are amazing of people jumping on boxes higher than my head. But it doesn't happen overnight. You start out small with seemingly insignificant boxes, like jumping on a stair. And then over time, you go higher and higher. So you're training your body in explosive power. Um, Free advertisement for CrossFit, one of their claims is that it is highly functional, that you're training your body to kind of work on demand for everyday life. And so you're doing things that you would do normally, but you're training your body to be ready to function when needed. And so I wonder if you feel like that in your spiritual life. Are you spiritually trained to function? ready to go, primed, full of energy and expectation, ready to do the things God has for you. Or maybe you feel more spiritually flat, unsure, unmotivated, no great expectations. That's pretty normal, actually. I think probably all of us have been in that situation. We know what it feels like and how it happens, how that spiritual inertia sets in. Sometimes we just lose momentum, and so we might have been excited and ready to go at some point, but so much time has passed, and we've lost our edge. Or other times we're kind of paralyzed by fear of risk. In that case, we might be spiritually engaged, we're wanting to act, but it just seems like every opportunity costs too much. It's too unclear. Or sometimes we just get bogged down by frustration or opposition, We want to work for and with God, but the environment's just not right. And so not the right time in our life, not the right time in the world around us, too much against it. This is the experience of the spiritual slouch. Not falling away from God, but just falling out of step with him. Flat. It can happen individually or also with groups. And so maybe you felt like this for yourself or for your family, for your church. One day you just wake up and realize... I'm stalled. 
Well, in the midst of this challenge, we actually have a lot of help for us this morning because we get to see Nehemiah face all these things, all these challenges that typically get us stuck, but instead of giving up, he gets going. And he even manages to convince other people to do the same. And so that's what we have before us, to see how God overcomes spiritual inertia. As Nehemiah, he's going to do three things that we're going to look at. He's going to be persistent in prayer when it takes too long, optimistic in risk when it costs too much, and realistic in planning when things look too hard. And amazingly, in those small ways, God does some great things. And so that's our goal, is to overcome spiritual inertia by stepping out into God's providential care. And so first, persistent in prayer when it takes too long. God overcomes spiritual inertia when we are persistent in prayer, even when it feels like it's taking too long. And so look back at our passage beginning in verse 1. We have a, a, a date stamp that we are in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And so, of course, not a car calendar, but instead a reference to the Jewish calendar. And so chapter 1 started in the month of Chislev, and now we're in the month of Nisan. You are a tough crowd, all right? A little chuckle? Come on now. All right. Um, so chapter 1, month of Chislev, now we're in the month of Nisan. And so what that means is that four months have passed since Nehemiah first heard the news about Jerusalem and started praying for God to act. He ends his prayer in chapter 1 in this way. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to feel your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah, he's a hero in many ways, but he's also very, fairly ordinary. What makes the difference is that he steps out when facing the challenges that often hold us back. And this one is that it often feels like the plans of God are taking way too long. And so his prayer for success today took four months to answer. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. For Nehemiah, it was four months of tears and fasting, four months of praying for mercy before the king that he saw every day. And yet somehow it hadn't been four months of moping and so at the end of verse 1, he tells us that he had not been sad in his presence. We know what that looks like, right? Looking or acting in such a way that someone has to ask what is wrong. Now, I'm not saying anything against honesty or authenticity. This isn't a suggestion that we need to hide our disappointment or struggles. But I do think we should see that despite the burden of waiting, Nehemiah did not make this about him. It was about God and his promises and his plans. And so Nehemiah, he knew that they were in this situation for a reason, namely their own mistakes and sin. And he knew that they were dependent on God's mercy, that it was his providential care that would have to do something. And so for four months, Nehemiah prayed, not slouched and defeated, but crouched and waiting. How do we know? Well, because when the answer came, he was ready to act and he acted fast. I'm guessing that his prayer must have continued to this very day. Even this morning in chapter 2, as he woke up, he must have prayed, give success to your servant today. And when it seems clear that the day has finally arrived, in verse 4, Nehemiah, he sends up one more additional urgent quick prayer. And so here's a servant leader who 
overcomes spiritual inertia by persistent prayer, even when it seems like it's taking too long. So are we practicing prayer like that? Where waiting builds up tension, even with tears. Where waiting is about waiting on the Lord and less about waiting for someone else to notice. That's such a hard balance to strike. And I know that so many of you have hopes and needs that you have been waiting on the Lord for for a long time. It's hard to be persistent in prayer when so clearly in our minds things are taking way too long. And often our prayers of waiting become conversations of complaint. Where the prayer, how long, O Lord, it becomes less about how long until you act as you have promised, how long until you bring about the good you are planning, and instead it becomes, how long will you ignore me? How long since you have come through for me? And it's at times like this we really need servant leaders like Nehemiah. Those who can remind us of the ordinary experience of waiting for God. So how can we remain persistent in prayer, even when it's taking too long? Well, in times like this, we really do need each other. We need people who can pray with and for us. We need people who can fast with us, either literally or metaphorically feeling our need with us. That's what fasting was all about. We need people who can remind us of the promises of God. That must have been what it was like for these last four months for Nehemiah and for the other servants who delighted to fear the name of the Lord, They must have been helping each other to stay persistent and ready, praying together, remembering God's promises together, rehearsing them in worship together. We can also be helped individually. I don't know if you use a tool like a prayer journal. Oftentimes we write in them and we use them to look back and see how God has answered. Another way we could use them is write in them and use them to look back to see if our prayers have changed. Have we lost hope and trust that we had months ago? Have we gotten stuck in spiritual inertia by asking, how long will you keep me waiting, instead of how long before your good plans become clear? And so first off, we see that God, he overcomes spiritual inertia when we are persistent in prayer, even when it is taking too long. And we'll see that in the life of Nehemiah, God can work powerfully in this ordinary practice. And so second optimistic in risk when it costs too much. That God overcomes spiritual inertia when we are optimistic in risk, even when it seems to cost too much. You probably know the difference between optimistic risk and pessimistic risk. Optimistic risk is something like the financial trader, or so I hear, that they like volatility because the risk brings opportunity. You see, the risk is worth it. It's worth the gain. Versus, think of the risk where it's necessary not to lose. I have no other choice but to risk it all. That's kind of like the risk of the gambler, actually. And in this case, the risk is better than losing everything. Very different experiences. And so let's see how Nehemiah approaches this risk that is necessary for him to step out in faith. And so look back in our passage in verse 2. The critical moment has come. And we don't know whether Nehemiah has decided to show his sadness or whether he just couldn't hold it in anymore. I actually think it's more likely that in God's providence, the king had unusual insight in this particular moment. And so the king, he asked the question, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Is it a question of genuine concern? 
It could be. It seems as though the king does care about Nehemiah. Um, he certainly trusts him because he's the cupbearer. The guy would be trusted to help the king avoid poison. But the question could also be taken as a threat. What reason could you possibly have to be sad before me? Either way, Nehemiah takes it as a dangerous moment. In this day, it would have been disrespectful to be sad before the king, especially at a feast or a festival, which I think is where we're at, because the king is there with his queen and they're receiving wine. It's probably a festival, perhaps even the king's birthday. But even beyond that, I'm sure Nehemiah is afraid because of the significance of the moment, of what he is about to ask. And so remember from the Ezra reading, it is the same king who 20 years earlier had stopped the work on the wall. He had said, you are right, Jerusalem is no good. They are rebellious. Don't let them finish. And so why would he change his mind now? Why would a request from a cupbearer get him to about course? Well, even though he has been persistent in prayer, Nehemiah, he doesn't know quite what will happen. He trusts that God has made promises to his people. He believes God wants to restore them, but he doesn't know exactly how or through whom. Maybe it's not through him, or maybe it's through his suffering instead of his success. And so the moment he has been praying for comes, and he is deeply afraid. So why does he take the risk? Well, he overcomes spiritual inertia, the, the force to do nothing, by being optimistic in risk, even when it would cost him everything. And so he knows that God has been attentive to his prayer. He knows that God has promised to restore his people. He knows that God has providentially placed him in a position, probably unlike any other Israelite, in a position to advocate before the single person with the power to support the building project. And he knows that God can turn the heart of the king whichever way he wants. And so he actually has lots of reasons to be optimistic in risk. He's been praying for mercy before this man, for the chance to act. He's been crouched and ready to go, and now the moment has come. And maybe you remember the story of Esther. In a similar way, he must think that it's at least possible that God has placed him in this position for such a moment as this. And he says, if I perish, I perish. You see, if he perishes or suffers or fails, it's not his failure. It's not a sign that God has abandoned his people or will never do the work. It would just be a sign that God's doing his work a different way. You see, it is a risk, but he is optimistic that it is a risk worth taking. And when it goes well, Nehemiah knows why. Verse 8 the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This same optimism is, is how Nehemiah then invites others to join him. You probably noticed it in the story if you look down to verse 18. Nehemiah, he's describing to the other people what he's going to do. He says, you see the troubles we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burn with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. You'll notice that Nehemiah, he doesn't sugarcoat it or hide the cost. Nehemiah, Jerusalem is in trouble. The opponents who stopped the work 20 years ago are still around. But he is confident that the hand of God has been upon him in this. So I wonder, are you optimistic in risk 
especially when it comes to the work that God is doing in our lives and in the church. One way to gauge that is whether your trust in God overcomes your temperament. What I mean is this, is that some of us are naturally risk takers. All right, we don't have to raise our hands, you know who you are. But we are used to taking risks. We enjoy it, life on the edge. And we take risks in all sorts of areas of life. But the question is, does your faith lead you to take gospel risks? Risks for the work that God is doing. Some of us are naturally more cautious, methodical, careful in our planning and execution, and the world is grateful to have us compared to those risky people. But the question for you is, does the gospel lead you to be willing to risk? Because unlike all those other areas of life where the risk might be unfounded and unwise, in God's plan, we have great reason for optimism. And for all of us, does the gospel lead us to be willing to pay the cost of the risk? You know what this cost is like individually, the cost of speaking up about our faith at risk of how people will respond. Personally, the cost of saying no to sin, not my way, but waiting on God's way at risk of never getting your way. Or together, what a great risk it is that we're planning a church in Norwalk, a church of our size, incredibly risky. But you see, with God's providential care, he often honors us by using our small steps of being willing to pay the cost as the resource he uses to build or change. It's kind of like crowdsourcing in that way. You know, crowdsourcing, it gives us the chance to take ownership in a movement or a product. And so when God calls us to take a risk, when Jesus says, carry the cross, he's inviting us to also share in the reward. Are you optimistic in risk? Finally, realistic in planning when it looks too hard. The God overcomes spiritual inertia when we are realistic in planning even when it looks too hard. Nehemiah, he is a man of great faith and courage, but he's also a man of realistic planning and preparation. When his chance finally comes, it becomes clear that in addition to kind of waiting on the Lord in prayer, Nehemiah has also been wisely preparing in faith. And that is a great combination. Sometimes we think that being spiritual would only mean waiting in prayer. But yet Nehemiah, he has prepared realistically. In verse 3, when the moment comes, he wisely communicates his request to the king. He uses themes that the king could relate to. He avoids things that might be a negative trigger. And so he talks about Jerusalem not as the capital of Israel, but rather as the place of his father's graves. It isn't a political request for power. It's a personal request for closure. And then in verses 7 and 8, when he's confident that God has indeed opened the way, oh, he steps forward not only asking for permission to go, but also asking for official letters, even timbers from the king's own forest. You see, he is wisely ambitious. He knows his history. He's aware of the challenges that will face this task, that the neighbors in Jerusalem still didn't want to see the city secure and prospering. They say that they're disappointed that anyone has come to seek the welfare of this people. And he also knows that even though the Israelites have returned, it has not gone all that well. He didn't need to fake success or prosperity. He knows that if this build is going to happen, it would be dependent on the generosity of others, namely the king himself. And he wasn't so arrogant as to shrink from asking for help. 
He must have known that it was God's forest and that he had given it to the king. And so it goes that each step along the way, Nehemiah, he overcomes spiritual inertia, uh, the force to do nothing, with realistic planning. He doesn't get bogged down in details that were neglected due to lack of faith. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he doesn't rush to start the work. He doesn't flaunt his royal approval or his rich resources, saying, I'm here, now get going. Instead, in verse 12, after three days, he arises in the night, takes a few people with him, tells no one of what God had given in his heart to do. Why the delay? Why the nighttime mission? Well, it must have been this very real opposition facing any effort to seek welfare. He didn't want the opponents to know about it just yet. And he probably didn't want the people to know about it just yet either. You see, they were stuck. They were flat. A very real discouragement, a sense of defeat. That's what we saw about in our Ezra reading. That's what we know about in this period of history, actually, for the Israelites, the post-exile period, that tons of spiritual inertia keep the Israelites stuck in trouble, in disappointment, in hopelessness. You notice the list in verse 16? And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were due to work. Notice the list. No one was leading the charge in faith. No one was crouched and ready to work. There were no advocates of peace here. But into this spiritual slouch, God sends Nehemiah. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Do you see how God overcomes spiritual inertia through a servant leader who is ready to step out, ready to entrust himself and his mission to God's providential care? Neither opposition, nor poverty, nor destruction, nor past mistakes, none of that would keep them stuck. It's his overall perspective that we see at the end of the chapter in verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. It's a trifold perspective. God will make us prosper. So we will arise and build. So no one else has the right or claim to stop us. No one else has the right or claim to stop what God will do for the city where he has placed his name. And so I hope you see how much we can learn from Nehemiah how much we would benefit from stepping forward in persistent prayer, optimistic risk, realistic planning. But I do wonder if here at the end we might have missed our place in the story. I won't ask you who you relate to, but we did begin with an acknowledgement that actually we find ourselves often spiritually flat, stuck, perhaps unable to even take one step against the spiritual inertia that has built up against us. It's been too long, too costly, too hard. And so it might be that in addition to learning from Nehemiah, we actually have a lot to learn from the people. The Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. 
but so far hadn't. They were people who had gotten stuck. They hadn't walked away from God. They had simply stopped believing that he meant good for them. They stopped waiting, stopped looking, stopped hoping. You see, they had stopped crouching and started slouching. Nehemiah says they had been suffering derision. Really, it's shame. That in their place as God's people in his city, they were ashamed. But against spiritual inertia like that, God makes a great and gracious move. He sends them Nehemiah, only a cupbearer to the king, but a faithful and courageous servant to the king of kings. When they couldn't pray, he prayed for them. When they wouldn't pay the cost, he took all the risk. When they didn't plan, he realistically provided for it all. And the amazing thing about how God overcomes spiritual inertia, you see, the challenge of spiritual inertia, of any inertia, is that the most powerful force is against the first step. And so God does it himself. In his providential care, Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem, and he doesn't shame the people. He doesn't condemn them for not building already. He doesn't tax them to pay for his advocacy. Instead, he invites them forward, and they strengthen their hands for the good work. This is how God loves to work. He loves to move his people out of shame, out of inertia. This is why his providential care is less of a stumbling block and more of a gracious gift. And so often we do get tripped up by God's control over the world, thinking, oh, couldn't he do something different or better? Or how can he do that at all? But yet it is a gracious gift that he would do it. That these Israelites who first read this account, those who were benefiting from a rebuilt city, a rebuilt temple, these walls, but yet still they would have sensed that they needed more, that they wanted more. For those Israelites, God would send another servant, someone else who would seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Someone who would pray for them, not just for four months, but never ceasing. Someone who would take all the risk in optimism who for the joy that was set before him, he would endure the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Someone else who would realistically plan everything that was needed for salvation, so much so that he would be known as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so we do have a lot to learn from Nehemiah, but even more, we have a lot to benefit from Nehemiah and his Lord. That when God writes a story of providential care for his people, it is indeed a beautiful thing. But it takes place and takes root in ordinary ways. For us, each Sunday he calls us here to overcome spiritual inertia. To keep us from getting stuck, to unstuck us when we are, not to shame us. And so as we pray together, even from the throne of heaven, the Lord Jesus intercedes for us. As we consider the risky prospect of taking up our crosses and following him, whether it's saying no to sin, yes to godliness, or even as a church taking a risky step of church planning, God has ordained all things to work together for good. And even as we come to the table in a minute, we remember that he has prepared everything. He has called us to join us. He has stepped towards us inviting us to step towards him, to have our very spiritual lives lying in the palm of his hand, not to shame us as beggars, but to feast with us as family. 
And it's here we remember that whoever or whatever would oppose the work of God in our lives and in the church, they have no portion or right or claim. When God has put his name on his church, when God has put his name on his people, in his providential care, the work will go on. And so we do, we should, we step out, breaking that bond of inertia yet again because he has stepped in and he has strengthened our hands for the good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good works you have prepared in advance for us to do. We confess that we are often slow and stuck to do them. And so we thank you most of all for the good work you have done in the Lord Jesus, that you have turned our hearts, you have invigorated us, brought us alive in your spirit. And so we do pray that our time together this morning in our service, hearing from your word, partaking together, that all of it would be working together for your glory and our good under your so wise and so righteous providential care. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.